Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 41, December 27th through December 31st, 1861. Before we move forward, I want to wish everyone a very happy new year, and I hope everyone has had a great 2021, and here's to an even better 2022. Last week, we talked about the Battle of Drainsville in Northern Virginia, which saw the Union get some much-needed battlefield success in the Eastern Theater. We also talked about the Medal of Honor, which really comes into being during the Civil War, and the introduction of campaign medals as well. This week, we'll have a cavalry action in Kentucky, as well as close out with a brief recap of everything we have talked about so far. I'm sure everyone has to plan out their New Year's Eve activities, so without further ado, let's get into it. What better way to close out 1861 than to pop over to bourbon country in Kentucky? So we have the same strategic situation that we talked about when mentioning Rollette Station. The Green River is dividing the northern and southern forces for the moment. There would be probing movements to determine the enemy's strength. Much in the same way we talked about with Drainsville, sometimes these movements were to ease the monotony of camp life for the soldiers. We've briefly mentioned that as far as camp life went, there was a disenchantment with the attitude toward soldiering when the boredom set in, especially in the later stages of 1861. Volunteers who had so eagerly joined were no longer so gung-ho. In many cases, they would be itching for a fight. None so than a Confederate cavalry colonel named Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest is a controversial figure, to say the least. He was born in Bedford County, Tennessee, in 1821. With little in terms of formal education, Forrest was a self-made man, his father having died when he was only 16. Nathan would actually become financially successful prior to the war. Originally, he enlisted as a private, but then, I guess remembered he was essentially a millionaire and funded his own unit. Funny, I forget that all the time, too, and apparently so does my bank account. Forrest would recruit his cavalry troopers by saying he only wanted those ready for combat and that they would have a heap of fun and kill some Yankees. Sounds like a blast. Forrest will go on to make a large mark during the war in the West. Even with his colored reputation, it cannot be denied he was an effective cavalry commander during the war. He rises through the ranks, eventually commanding all rebel cavalry units in the army under John Bell Hood later in the conflict. Forrest was a thorn in the side of both Ulysses Grant in the Vicksburg campaign and Sherman in his Atlanta campaign. 
He is commanding the Confederate forces when they capture Fort Pello, which just so happens to have a garrison that included over 200 infantrymen belonging to the U.S. Colored Troops. His men, upon capturing the fort, massacred several of those who surrendered, which causes an outcry amongst the northern ranks. After the war, Forrest adds onto his checkered reputation by becoming a founding member of the Ku Klux Klan. Forrest was apparently the first Grand Wizard of the Klan, the name coming from Forrest having been known as a wizard in the saddle during the war. I have seen it argued that Forrest had little to do with the actual terror tactics of the KKK, only serving as Grand Wizard for a year before denying involvement. But, to be honest with you, I'd rather not get into too much into the history of the Ku Klux Klan, at least not at this stage of the narrative. Forrest would die in 1877 in Memphis, most likely due to diabetes. In December of 1861, an area of operations Forrest and his troopers would be conducting patrols and raids were Union troops under the command of Thomas Crittenden. Crittenden is an interesting figure, being a Kentucky native and the epitome of the war being a family affair. His cousin, also named Thomas Crittenden, was a Union general, that not being too remarkable, but his brother was a general in the Confederate Army. Really displays the divided nature of a border state like Kentucky, Thomas wishing to be loyal to the Union and the federal government. He would go on to service in the campaigns in the West, eventually becoming a corps commander and a key subordinate under Rosecrans. After the war, Thomas will continue on in the Army, eventually passing away in 1871. Serving as a scout for Forrest during this engagement was another interesting figure in Adam Stovepipe Johnson. Johnson was a native of Kentucky, but had spent some time in Texas, gaining a reputation as a frontiersman and Indian fighter. Returning to serve in the Civil War for his home state, Johnson would conduct partisan actions, capturing a town in Indiana, actually with only a handful of men. During that capture, they mounted two stovepipes onto wagon parts, making Quaker guns, hence the nickname Stovepipe. Johnson would be wounded in a friendly incident which left him blind. This did not stop Stovepipe, as he wished to return to the field, despite this, but the end of the war would put a stop to all that. Johnson moved to Texas after the conclusion of hostilities and survived until 1922, where he died and is buried in Austin. On December 28, 1861, Forrest and around 300 Confederate cavalry were riding when a Southern sympathizer informed them of Union cavalry nearby watering their horses. Molly Moorhead was the Kentucky native who alerted the rebels to the vulnerability of their foe and apparently even rode with them to the very point where they engaged in combat. I have seen sources imply she joined in firing on the Yankees, but I am not quite sure if this would be accurate. It could be propaganda and exaggeration, which occurs at the conclusion of this battle, as we will see. The Northern Cavalry is commanded by the 18-year-old Major Eli Murray. 
Colonel Forrest would display some tactics that would define his later career as one of the more prolific rebel cavalry commanders. He would divide his men into three divisions with a dismounted unit to engage the Federals, while mounted forces would flank their position. His troopers, it should be pointed out, were trained to be close quarter specialists, much as their commander. Many were armed with shotguns. A bugle would sound in the beginning of the trap, the Kentucky Cavalry taken by surprise. Forrest, it was said, led a cavalry charge personally, something he would continue to do for the rest of the war. In fact, it was reported the commander felled several Union cavalrymen personally. Here is a quote from Adam Johnson about Forrest and the charge. Led by this impetuous chieftain, we swooped down upon our foes with such terrific yells and sturdy blows as might have them believe a whole army was on them. And turning tail, they fled in the wildest terror, a panic-stricken mass of men and horses, cutting and shooting right and left, and Forrest himself, in his fury, ignoring all command and always in the thickest of the melee. Murray's Kentucky troopers would retreat, pursued through the town of Sacramento, and then for a few miles afterwards. The Confederate victory was blown out of proportion, with Union casualties reported in the hundreds, with many more captured. In reality, the casualties were two Confederates killed and ten Union killed. The narrative for Forrest would result in his star rising within the Confederate ranks. I think this was an early war morale booster, with the situation stalemating in Kentucky, maybe even a ploy to those on the fence in the southern state. Fun fact, every year there is a reenactment in Sacramento, Kentucky. I recommend checking out some videos online. Seems to be a fun time, or at least I think it seems like it's a fun time, uh, so do check that out. With that, we can officially put 1861 in the books. I think there are similarities and differences in how Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln are feeling as the year turns over into 1862. For Lincoln, it may seem a little down in the sense that the nation is still divided and there is no quick solution. Putting the United States back in order was going to require an awful lot of lives. Still, the game plan was unfurling, and the blockade of southern ports is slowly beginning. Victories at Hatteras and Port Royal, as well as the bottling of New Orleans, had to be positives. There would still need to be work done in order to capitalize on the naval superiority. Battlefield defeat was an issue. In the eyes of the public, the larger-scale engagements were determining who was winning and who was losing. First Bull Run and Wilson's Creek were our two larger battles of the war thus far. Ball's Bluff and Big Bethel were two more that could demoralize the northern war effort. The inactivity of George B. McClellan was not quite to our breaking point, but it was getting there. His prestige had not yet subsided, and he would still be considered one of the best modern generals the army had. 
Little Mac would have a plan and Lincoln would follow it. The question of war aims is still rearing its head for Abe. Preservation of the Union. Emancipation of the slaves came secondary, although fellow Republicans may not have sought it to be so. There were Northern Democrats and moderates who did not necessarily want that, or at least that was not a high priority. Radical Republicans were partially blamed for the war in the first place. The time was not yet ready. If we can take control of the ports in the Mississippi River in time, maybe then it will not be necessary. 1862 will tell. But as it stood in December of 1861, Kentucky was still in the hands, mostly, of the Confederates. Albert Sidney Johnson had a line that extended in that state. The pro-Union portion of eastern Tennessee was still in Confederate hands, so something was going to have to be done in order to start securing these battleground states. Jefferson Davis is probably feeling pretty good about the battlefield success that the Confederates are seeing in the East. First Bull Run was a key victory, but could it easily have been lost, and it was clear through that battle it would not be a short war. The battleground states are still being contested. Missouri had seen defeat with State Guard under Claiborne Fox Jackson and Sterling Price, but a resurgence when combined with Wilson's Creek and the capture of Lexington. Fortunes were reversed when Fremont got his large federal army moving. Kentucky would be the site of major battles to come. We've already seen Cap Wildcat, Rollett Station, and the already mentioned Sacramento, among others. Western Virginia had been lost with campaigns by McClellan and Rosecrans. Allegheny Johnson is able to prevent the valley, for the time being, from falling into Union hands and a further hero of the first major battle of the war will show up and further solidify the breadbasket of the Confederacy, at least for another year. I think we need to talk a little bit about the Confederate war aims now. Obviously, Lincoln needs to preserve the Union. The Confederates also need to preserve their own territory. Jefferson Davis is constantly going to be battling this notion that they need to fight a defensive war. With limited manpower, it's going to be hard for him to accomplish this task. That's why there's sort of this conflicting view, especially from folks like Robert E. Lee, who says, hey, we need to have battlefield success, and that's the only way in which we're going to win the war. Despite the sense of potential security, Richmond would soon be threatened. The Army of Northern Virginia and their aura of invincibility was not yet created. In fact, the Army of Northern Virginia would not come into existence until Robert E. Lee takes the reins. And by that, I mean that it's not actually called the Army of Northern Virginia yet. I think it is telling of the early war experience of Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. They both have these unlikely roads that lead them through adversity to where they are at the end of the war as these iconic figures. Both have seen setback in 1861, Grant at Belmont, and Lee at Cheat Mountain. Obviously, there are bigger things in store for them, and we'll start to see those in 1861. Sherman has a bumpy start, and goodness, we have not even mentioned Phil Sheridan yet.
all in due time, patient listener. What will 1862 bring? Well, as I mentioned, we have to fight for Richmond and the Valley. Grant will see a larger scale engagement at Shiloh. We will return to the site of the first major battle of the war for round two. We have to fight the bloodiest single day of battle in American history and charge up Marie's Heights at Fredericksburg. Oh, did I mention an invasion of Kentucky? A capture of New Orleans, maybe? Well, if those things seem exciting, then I invite you to stay with us as we roll into 2022 and subsequently 1862. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Your support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.